I think after that, some of the adults want to go downstairs. <laughs> I want to go hear what happens on day seven. <laughs> it's good. It's good to have good teachers that love the word and love our students. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. We are in the book of Hebrews. We've been making our way through the book of Hebrews. Last week we started the last chapter um, of this book, and we saw that the entire Christian life is to be characterized by love. We're to love the church. We're to love strangers. We're to love those who suffer. We're to love our spouses. And above all, we are to love Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Last week we looked and we saw, okay, God is love, and then he saves us and transforms us and lives inside of us so we would love like him. We said the defining quality of a Christian is that we love others. But you might ask, so how exactly does that happen? Or or to say it this way, how is it that God works in us so we love others? Do you get it? So you're a Christian, And the Bible says you are to love others, and you understand the Spirit now lives in you. So how is it the Spirit who lives in you is going to work in you so you will grow in your love for others? That's the question that we're going to answer today. Uh, And so the author is going to give us kind of a pattern for how we live the Christian life, and the main point is because Jesus left heaven to serve us, we go outside the gate to serve others. And I realize that might sound somewhat confusing at this moment, but I think after we make our way through the text, we should clearly understand why it's important that Jesus left heaven to serve us so we would go outside the gate and serve others. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and stand. Here at Timberline, we stand at the reading of God's word. We do that as a means of reminding us that this is God's word. It comes inspired by the spirit of God for the purpose of equipping us, transforming us, so we would live and love like God. So we are going to read uh, from verse 7 to verse 16. It says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high spirit, as by the high priest, as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. But I pray that we would understand how your spirit works in us, 
so that we would grow in our knowledge of you, our love for you, our satisfaction in you, so that we would live as living sacrifices in this world, that every breath that we take, every action that we do would be to your glory and would be an act of love towards others. So Lord, may we understand your word today. May we grow in our love for your word today. And as 1 John 3 says, may we not love in word or talk only, but in deed and truth. So may your word work its way down into our soul today. That we would truly live lives of love for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom continuing to advance in this world. In your name, Jesus. Amen. You all may be seated. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to start in verse 9 this morning. So we're going to start there. We'll come back to verses 7 and 8 at the end. Uh, but the author starts out then with giving us a warning. And he warns us. He says, beware of worldly teaching that sounds impressive but leaves you malnourished. That's what he's warning us against. Did you know that almost every single book in the New Testament warns us against false teaching? Many of them do it multiple times. And today, with all the forms of social media, when you think of Facebook, YouTube, podcasts, live streaming, there is almost an innumerable amount of ways that false teaching can go out into this world at this time. If the world, uh, if the religious teaching is food, then the world offers a very, very, very impressive buffet. And so, so the author gives two words to describe this kind of false teaching. And we see it. The first one is the word diverse. And what I found was interesting, this word is the exact same word used in Genesis 37 to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. So, so he's talking about this teaching that looks impressive, that's clever, that's eloquent, that dazzles. You remember 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 Paul warns us against teaching that would just tickle our ears. So he's warning us, be careful about guys who will stand in front of you and just have an amazing rhetoric that just almost mesmerizes you as you're listening to them. The second word he uses is the word strange. This was more of a common word. It would be used to refer to aliens and strangers. So he's talking about something new. Not only something dazzling, not only something mesmerizing, but when someone stands up and says, I have a new teaching for you. They've misunderstood the Bible for 2,000 years, but don't worry. I now rightly understand it so you can trust me. Look, I think we always got to come back to Ecclesiastes where we remember there's nothing new under the sun. If anyone stands and says, I have something new that no one else has understood, it's like 99% sure it's false teaching right there. Like just, just know that. And so here's the danger. If you look at verse 9, at the very end of it, he says, this teaching that's mesmerizing, that will tickle your ears, that sounds so good, and it's creative, and it's something that no one has quite said like it before, he says it has absolutely no benefit to you. So if the world offers this impressive buffet, we must realize that not only does it not satisfy us, but we'll be malnourished. In fact, we'll be worse off for feasting on the teachings of this world. And so now the primary false teaching the church 
is being tempted with here in the book of Hebrews, which we have talked for, for many, many weeks now, is, is Judaism. Judaism is coming and saying, you should come and, alter, and make sacrifices at our altars. Judaism is saying, you come into our temples, the ones that we have made, offer this, eat this, don't do this, wash your hands like this, live this way, and then you'll be okay. And, and in reality, that's what all religious teachings except for Christianity teaches. By performing religious rituals, you'll prove your righteousness and you'll be accepted into society. In fact, one of the reasons Christians weren't accepted into society is in the first century is because they didn't go to the temples. They had no earthly temple that they were going to. And all the other people groups who worship the pantheon of gods were going into these temples. And they actually called Christians atheists at that time for thinking that they had no God because they had no temple. So they were not accepted into the larger part of society. And in fact, if you think about it, religion largely is a way of being accepted into society. If you live in India, you'll be Hindu. If you live in Thailand, you'll be Buddhist. If you live in Iraq, you'll be Islam. If you're in South America, you'll be Catholic. And if you're here in America, you'll hold to a new religion called, called science, because that is sometimes portrayed as a religion or, or even atheism. And by adhering to these, to these tenets of faith, you'll be accepted and affirmed into society. And so the author is warning us about falling into any type of, any type of teaching that would draw us away from the gospel. And so, so then he says, so don't feast on this, but he says, feast only on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if you look at verse 9, he says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. All the religions of the world focus on what you must do, but Christianity focuses on Jesus Christ and what he has done. The religions of the world say do, Christianity says done. And if you look at, in verse 10, the author says, we don't need to go to your man-made temples to make sacrifices at your man-made altars, because then he says, because we have our own altar. And he says, from which those who serve the tent referring to like the tabernacle, so he's specifically talking about Judaism here, but really it could refer to all false religions. He says, but we have an altar, and those who, who don't worship at our altar, and they worship at all these other altars, they have no right to come here. You cannot hold these worldly altars and also come to our altar. And so what is the altar that he says we go to? Well, we come to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where we come. The author calls us to feast on the gospel. And we know this because of verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11. It sounds strange at first. If you just kind of read it, you're like, how does that fit? He says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. That makes sense, right? You're like, we have our own altar, so let's talk about Old Testament Jewish practices. So how does it fit? Well, in the Old Testament, when goats and bulls were sacrificed on the altar of God, certain parts, the unclean parts, like the skin and the dung, they were taken outside the camp where they were burned. You read about that in Exodus chapter 29, Leviticus chapter 16. Now, one thing the author has done all throughout the book of Hebrews 
is show how the entire Old Testament points towards Jesus Christ. Repeatedly, he's looked at the stories in the Old Testament. He's looked at the practices of Israel and shows how everything moves towards Jesus. And even what we see is not just the sacrifices, but the unclean parts of the sacrifices themselves point to Jesus. Because if you notice in verse 12, here's the connection that he makes. He says, so so he said, you know those Old Testament sacrifices and the unclean parts you took outside the camp and you burned? So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The unclean parts of the sacrifice that were not worthy to be burned on the altar of God. We have to understand those in a couple of ways. For one, they represent you and me. Do you, like, we have to understand that because of our sinfulness, the Bible says we are not worthy to come into the presence of God. We're not worthy to walk into his courts. We're not worthy to even come and stand on his doorstep. It says we are utterly sinful. Everything we do is contaminated by sin. And Romans 8 says not only do, not we, not only do we not want to please God, we don't want to submit to God. We have no desire in our sinfulness, for God to be glorified at all. The Bible says we are completely and absolutely unclean. We have no ability to come before God. We have no ability to make ourselves clean. And if you just think about it, all these other religions create a way for you to make yourself clean and come before their gods in a man-made tabernacle. All of these gods, all, all of these other religions Man is able to clean himself up. But we serve a God who is so incredibly holy, who's outside of creation, who his very holiness far exceeds anything that we can ever measure up to. says so there is no ability for you to make yourself clean. The only way you can be clean is by grace. And so therefore he sends his son Jesus. So his son Jesus would come in the flesh would take on our uncleanness so we could become clean. Or, or as it says, he became sin so that we could become the very righteousness of God. Or if you look at Galatians 3.13, it says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what we understand in the Bible. The only reason we are clean is not because of anything that we have done, but because Jesus took our sin our shame, our uncleanliness, and he took it upon himself so we could then be made right. We could be justified. We could be clean. By his grace, we are made right. Or as in verse 12, it says, we are sanctified. And that word sanctified refers to our entire salvation, that we are made holy like God. Only by the grace of God are we forgiven. The religions of the world, they offer a man-made means in order to be made right, but only in Christianity is it by grace. And so the first thing the author wants us to do is if we're gonna understand how is it that we live this life of love, he calls us to remember the gospel. He calls us to come back and remember the extravagant love of our God who loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son that he would come and out of love bear our sins so we could be cleansed. 
That's the first thing we must realize. The Spirit is working in our hearts that we would come back to the gospel. Um, my, uh, I think I've shared this multiple times. My, my grandma had a stroke uh, in the latter part of her life, and so she lived her last few years in a, in a wheelchair. And so she didn't have movement of half of, her, of, half of her body, and so uh, she was limited in everything that she did. Now, she was saved at a young age. She was raised by, by godly parents. Uh, she, she was involved in the church. She read her Bible cover to cover every single year, probably multiple times. She discipled women. She loved her husband. Uh, she helped raise the kids and, and do the things. They lived on a farm. Uh, she praised God every day. And so when she entered into that wheelchair and her life was forever changed, her hope wasn't dashed, though. Her joy had not been overcome, and she was, uh, she was not able to use words very easily. Um, she stuttered a lot. She stumbled over them. It was hard for her to speak, and so uh, she would just say three words over and over and over again. She'd say, remember the cross, remember the cross, remember the cross, remember the cross, and she would just have a smile that, that would come upon her that you knew radiated from a deep well of joy in her heart. And you got to go, at that time, it's really good that our righteousness is not based upon our own actions and our own accomplishments because when we're in a wheelchair and we can only use half our body and we can't say many words, there's not a lot of things we can do. But when it's all by grace, whether we're in a wheelchair or whatever our condition is, we can remember the cross, the extravagant love of God, that he has loved us, and we can have great, great, great joy because our salvation is secure in the grace of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the first thing he wants us to do is to remember the gospel. And if we're to love others, we must come back to the gospel every single day. If we're to love our spouse, if we're to love strangers, if we're to love those who are suffering, if we're to come in here each and every day and, and love our brothers and sisters in the church, we must know the gospel. We must be regularly reminded of the love of God. So wives, I want to encourage you, help your husbands be in the word. Help them to be in the word, remind them, encourage them to be in the word. Let's teach our children, not only with our words, but by our actions, to be in the word each day. You, you will not find time to be in the word. You have to make time. I think you, many of you know exactly what that means, because you know the day gets busy, and if you have kids, what I learned very early on is once the kids get, come up, like, the day is gone, <laughs> Like, it's just gone. There's just needs. There's things that are happening. Work that happens, comes home. There's kids. You're doing things. At the end of the day, if you're like me, I don't read well and I don't think well at the end of the day. Like, at the beginning, I, that's, for me, is where I am, I am the most fresh and most energized. So I love my mornings. I prioritize them. But whatever works for you, just realize you will not find time. You must make time to regularly sit in the word of God on a daily basis. 
That's number one. He warns us against listening to false teaching. He calls us, remember the gospel. And so what happens when we're reading the gospel? What happens when we're sitting under the preaching of the word? What is to be our response? And that's where we come into our response or the way we live out the gospel. Number one, we take up our cross and follow Christ because of the promises of God. And I want you to see how this works here. If you look at verse 13, so he's reminded us of the gospel, reminded us Jesus has gone outside the gate, what he's done for us. And then he says in verse 13, therefore, so he's making a connection because Christ has done this, therefore, we let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Going outside the camp refers to Jesus and where he was taken outside the city of Jerusalem that he'd be crucified. So we can't say it much more clearly. He's telling us, like Jesus took up his cross, we also ought to take our cross and we ought to live like Christ. And you go, well, is that what he's saying? Well, Jesus said it, Luke 9, 23. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 6, 24, that Jesus told his disciples, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The author is saying the very same thing. Jesus took his cross, went outside the gate where he suffered. Therefore, we go outside the gate. What's the point then? Why are we being told to take up our cross? Why does Jesus say it? Why does the author say it? Because when we take up our cross and follow Jesus, we're saying that Jesus is more beautiful, more glorious, and more satisfying than everything this world has to offer. Many of you remember Philippians 3. Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament. In Philippians 3, Paul kind of gives a little bit of his own biography and he talks about um, his, his heritage, that he comes from the right family. He's in the right religious group, in the right social group. According to worldly standards, he, he is at the top of the social ladder. He, um, he is an accomplished man. He is the one that everyone else looks at and says, man, we want to be like that guy. The world envies him. And then this is what he says after he comes to Jesus. He says, but whatever gain I had, referring to everything I had apart from Jesus, my heritage, my possessions, my prestige, all of that. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And many of you know that that word rubbish, it's literally just dung. He's saying it's all poop, which is kind of fun when you say poop in church. And he goes on, did that like a few weeks or like a couple months ago. Um, but he's saying, look, I literally had everything. I have everything that the world would say is important. And now that I have Christ and I'm looking at both of them, all of this is nothing. I consider it absolutely nothing. He says, if I have Jesus and all I have is Jesus and none of this, I'm absolutely and 100% satisfied. Now just think about it. 
the church in Hebrews, we've been in it for like a year now, so you know the message. The church has been suffering. They've been arrested. Their possessions have been taken from them. They've gone to jail. Some have have probably died. And the author never once goes, wow, I never saw this coming. I'm so sorry. This is terrible. You guys misunderstood the gospel. This wasn't supposed to happen. He doesn't then give them like a three or four step method on, okay, so this is what you need to do. And if you follow these three or four or five steps, then you're, you're going to improve your social ranking really quickly. Your, your social media status will go up. You'll get more likes. And all of a sudden, the world's going to be like, oh, you guys are good. We're sorry we messed up. He never does that. In fact, rather, he basically says, you're right where God wants you. And he says, endure. Keep running the race. Grab each other, lock arms with one another, see that no one falls behind, keep running the race. It's as if he's saying what Peter does in 1 Peter 4.12, we should not be surprised at the suffering when we suffer as Christ did. In fact, in 4.13, then he said, Peter says, we ought to rejoice in the very sufferings of Christ, that we get to share in those, so we will all the more glorify at Christ's return. So throughout this letter, the, God, the author has told us to keep running the race. And now he's telling us, just as Jesus was rejected by the world, so we take up our cross, realizing it will cost us everything. And we rejoice in that. Now you might say, well, how do we actually know that's what he's saying? Are you sure that's what he's saying? Yes, I'm actually 100% sure that's what the author says because of verse 13. Look at the word reproach. When's the last time we came across that word in the book of Hebrews? It's a little test. You remember? You're like, no, I don't remember. (laughs) Chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 26. When, When the author is recounting the great men and women of the faith who have lived before, and he gets to Moses. Now, notice what he says about Moses. Now, remember, Moses, born a Jew, raised in the Egyptian court, He has everything. He has power. He has prestige. He has possessions. He lives in the court of the most powerful country there is at that time. This is what we read in Hebrews 11, 26. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking toward the reward. Same context. Moses says, look, I literally have everything, and I would rather side with Christ and all that that will be than have these things of the world. Same thing the author has told us here. Jesus left heaven, set aside his glory, came to earth where he bare our shame, went outside the city, bore all of our sin and shame, was rejected, scorned, and crucified. And now he says, now we go out there also, taking our cross. Because just as Paul said, I count I count all things as loss for the sake of Christ. He would rather suffer with Christ than enjoy the pleasures of the world. So we we get it wrong at times. We think that if we have more money, if we have better health, and we have worldly acceptance, then we can be better used by God. You know what's strange? I was thinking about this. Uh, this, uh, I was going back over the sermon this morning. I don't hardly remember anything my grandmother said to me throughout the 80 plus years she lived when she was well. 
But I remember her in a wheelchair saying, remember the cross. That's what I remember. Because there's something about weakness when it magnifies God that it shows what really is beautiful and glorious and all-satisfying. Listen, God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our, our health, our reputation. All throughout the Bible, we see that God uses what appears weak, what appears foolish, what appears wise, and that's what he uses to advance the kingdom of God. In fact, do you remember why he chose, why he chose Israel? He says, it's not because you were big and impressive looking, but because you were the smallest, most pitiful people. That's what he says in Deuteronomy. When he used Gideon to, to save Israel from the Midianites, He's hiding. And he says, oh, Gideon, great man of faith. Really? And then he, he said, instead of going out with 10,000 people, he says, well, let's just do it with 300 guys. All throughout the Bible, you see God uses that which appears foolish, even as Robert stands up here and he says, yeah, we have a group of Israelites walking around a fortified city with the choir and and trumpets leading it. And that's who's going to take Jericho. Well, that's absolutely ridiculous. But why does God operate that way? Well, 1 Corinthians says, God chooses the weak and foolish things of the world so that no man will boast in his presence. So who gets the glory then? God. God gets all the glory. That's why he works that way. Because he works in our weaknesses. Isn't that good news though? Think about it this way. God's not saying right now, if you were stronger, I could use you. If you looked better, I could use you. If you had more money, then you'd be usable. He's not saying, man, if you could work yourself up to this bar, then you would be accepted. And I would, that's all the other religions of the world they are saying, do this, do this, do this. No, by Christianity, it's by grace. It's in our weakness that he uses us that the gospel would go forth. And you say, well, well how, how do we live like that? I mean, that sounds radical and, and frankly just kind of dangerous. You're saying that we're to actually endanger our lives, take up our Christ, take up our cross, literally place ourselves in a situation where the, where the world will be against us. Why would we do that? Look at verse 14. He brings us right into the one of the promises of God. <clears throat> he says, for, or in other words, because. So we go outside the city, we bear the reproach of Christ. Why do we do this? Because we have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. That's why we do it. We freely take up our cross we embrace the rejection of the world, the suffering of Christ, because we know that there's a day coming where everything in this world or in this city, if we're just to describe the world as a giant city, everything in this city, in these gates, will be destroyed. Nothing will last. Your job won't last. Your, your possessions won't last. Your house won't last. Your car won't last. None of it will last. And then he says, but there's only one thing that will last, and it's this other city, which if you remember, we talked about at the end of Hebrews 12, the kingdom of God, Mount Zion, the unshakable mountain of God, where our names are already enrolled. He says, but that kingdom will last. And if we 
take up our cross, and we go outside this city, outside this world, suffering for Christ, proclaiming the worth of Jesus Christ, then we have our names written in the kingdom of God, and we know that when everything else passes away, our names are secure in the eternal, unshakable mountain of God. That's what we look forward to. That's our city. So he directs them to the promise of God. Isn't that better? If someone says, look, you can have all the joy you want for today, or you'll suffer for today, and you'll have all the joy you want for all of eternity, which one do you choose? Suffering for a day, or joy for a day that then leads to eternal suffering? Or suffering for a day, magnifying the name of God, showing the sufficiency of Christ, that we would enjoy Christ and all of his glory for the rest of our lives. Luke 9, 23 says this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Meaning, if you want your life now, if you want this to be your city, you'll lose it. But whoever... But whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever takes up his cross, whoever goes outside the camp, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit of a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That's the message of God. You can literally have everything you want now on this world or we believe in God. And we're satisfied in the joy we have in Jesus Christ, showing that we can literally have nothing in this world. We can be tied to a wheelchair with half of our body working, and we are far, far more satisfied in Christ than if we had everything. That is the joy that we're given in the gospel. So, so the question again, let's come back to the main question. How is it the Spirit works in us so that we love others? Number one, he brings us back to the gospel. But we're not just to read the gospel. We don't just come and sit under teaching and go, okay, I listened to the Bible today. But he calls us to see Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, to delight in Jesus. So when we're reading scripture, when we're sitting under the word, when we're gathering in table groups, and we're, we're going back over the word, or we're spurring, on, spurring each other on in Bible studies, we're spurring each other on in our joy and delight in Jesus Christ. It's not just hearing but it's seeing and savoring Christ. Do you understand the difference? We can all sit here and say, oh, I heard, I heard a sermon today. Or we can say, I saw Jesus today in the text, and I saw his beauty, and I saw his glory, and I saw his magnificence. So what happens next? We remember the gospel, we savor Jesus in the gospel, and then we praise God and serve others with every breath that we have. That's what takes us to verses 15 and 16. If you look at verse 15, it says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. To take up our cross is to be a living sacrifice to Jesus. And that means our words are meant to praise God and our lives were meant to give all that we have, our treasures, our talents, and our time to others as a means of loving them. We don't give our possessions away to be saved. We give them because we looked at the cross and we're reminded Jesus gave everything as he came to this world. And so also we now give all things because we have everything in Christ. 
So as we read, as we pray, as we gather together, we're encouraging each other to take up the cross. We're reminding ourselves that our words are to be used for the very glory of God. How we speak. Do our words give praise to God? And our actions were to give generously to others. I want to just encourage you to think, do you love Jesus more than your life? Do you love him more than your life? Do you love him more than your possessions? More than hunting? More than your houses? More than woodworking? More than your cars? More than just all the things that you can do? The evidence, we take up our cross, is that we praise God with our words and we give our, we give our possessions away with great joy. That's the evidence. That we praise God and we give all of our lives to others. How we use our words, how we think of our possessions, how we hold our possessions, that's a good gauge to wrestle with how are you loving Christ right now? How are you remembering the gospel? So maybe you go, can we live this way? Is that really possible? Um, do we live such gospel-centered lives? And so now this is where we come back to the very beginning two verses that we kind of skipped over in the beginning. Last point, we've been given godly leaders to provide us with godly examples. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. There's three commands. Remember, consider, and imitate. Remember your leaders, those who spoke, so he's probably primarily thinking of elders, of the pastors of the church. He says, consider the outcome of their lives. Probably referring that these very men have died now for the sake of the gospel. They were probably some of those we read back in chapter 10 that were arrested, that have suffered. Maybe they're not all, maybe they haven't all died, but very likely uh, some or all of them have died. And then he says, imitate their faith. The author points the church to those who have led the church and says, live like that. So God gives the church elders as a means of providing the church with fleshly, daily examples of what it looks like to take up our cross and love others. Elders are not better, they're not made differently. They simply have been recognized by the church for their faith in Christ. And then he says, imitate them. Just as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, elders are to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. God has designed the church so there would be men in the church that they would be in examples for the church. And so there's, there's two things I, I want to say here. Uh, number one, the first one is to elders and elder candidates. Some of you know we have, we have elders here. There's three of us as elders. And then we have two elder candidates. Aaron is here. And Adiel is not here. I think he's in Texas on vacation right now with his family. Um, this is our calling. And, and when we vote in elders, this is what we need to be thinking of as, of, as a church. We're voting in men who go outside the gate. We're voting in men who we'd say we want to imitate them. Not that they're perfect. No elder here would ever say that they're perfect and never hold us to that type of bar. But even hopefully in our imperfections, we demonstrate grace by seeking repentance, hopefully. But we need to remember that this is a weighty calling, but it's a joyful calling. Last week we said never, ever, 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 ever vote in an elder who doesn't do what? Do you remember? 
demonstrates hospitality. If you don't know the inside of your elder's house, do not vote him in as an elder. Number two, if you would not imitate your elder, do not vote him in. So that's the first one. We just need to remember as elders, we're called to live in a way that we're to be examples of this. We're all to do it, but elders are called to lead the church in this way. So don't think if you're not an elder or if you're going, well, I'm a woman, I'm not an elder, so I'm totally good here. No, no, we're all called to live this way. Elders are called just to simply live it out before the church as, as an example. Number two just say this to all the men in our church. And, and I, I want to more say it to, like, to all the males in our church. Because whether we have students, whether you're married, whether you're widowed, wh- whatever age bracket you're in, the church needs more elders. We need more elders, and the church as a whole needs more elders. We need men who will stand before their families and the church and count Jesus more beautiful and more glorious than all this world has to offer. We need men to take up their cross and to love their wives and to love their children on a daily basis. We need men to be devoted to the church and the advancement of the gospel more than the advancement of their careers. We need men who love Jesus more than their houses, their boats, their guns, their cars, their possessions, their careers, and their very own lives. That's what we need. We need, we need women to do it too. By all means, don't, don't misunderstand me. But the text is, is, is particularly picking on elders right now, so we're going to pick on men at this moment. I wanted to read a whole letter to you. I've read it to you before. Um, Adoniram Judson, any of you remember the famous missionary who went to Burma? When, when he wrote a letter to his future father-in-law asking for his daughter's hand in marriage, um, he, in essence, he said, will you... Will you give her to me? You'll probably never see her again. I plan on taking her to a faraway country. She will probably die a very painful death. You will probably only be reunited with her in heaven, but know at that time there will be glorious other souls who are there praising God because of how God has worked in your daughter in the far reaches of the world. And we will be surrounded by the angels at that time, giving praise to our God. Will you give me your daughter's hand in marriage? We need to raise fathers who will raise sons who will want to live that way. And we need to raise daughters who will want to marry men who will promise lives like that. Jeff is up here earlier and he gives Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the, to the worldly things of this world. You said it better. I'm blanking on it at this moment, man. There you go. What is it? The patterns of this world. We need to be transformed by the mind of Christ. So as Jeff has now two boys and two daughters, this is the type of men and daughters you're to raise. This is the men and daughters we're all called to raise. This is what we need to pray for. And if you're here and you're like, well, I don't even have kids, so I'm like off the hook. No, no. You have a lot of other kids here. Remember, because in Christ, we're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. You just have little brothers and little sisters. But we're called to raise men and women who would risk everything for the sake of the gospel. Because it's far more glorious than everything else this world has to offer 
So I want to encourage you to pray, whether you're a student today or, or however old you are, would God be moving you to be an elder? And wives, I want you to pray for your husbands and your sons that they would consider this as a calling on their life. Now, you might be thinking, and maybe you're a guy here, and you're thinking, that's not going to happen. And you got your, like, host of reasons, and you're quick. You're like, nope, nope, not me. I'm off the hook. Why? Like, why? Would it be strange if you were to be an elder? Would it appear unwise for you to be, would it be considered foolish if you were to be an elder? Isn't that how God works? He uses that which is unwise, that which appears foolish, and which is weak to shame the wise. See, be careful, guys. Like, you can sound humble, but you're not humble, you're prideful. Because you're literally saying, I'm outside the grace of God. God might work in other ways. He won't work that way in me. As if his grace and his power wouldn't be sufficient to transform your life that you could stand here and preach the word or lead the church. Did you see the difference? We think it's humble. It sounds humble. But then all of a sudden we go, oh, wait, that's not humility. That's prideful to say that couldn't happen. Why? Throughout the word, God uses that which appears unwise, which appears foolish and weak. And he transforms them to do incredible things for the gospel. So I encourage you, men, let's just humbly just hold it up. God, if you would lead me that way, just begin directing my path, begin moving me towards that. It might not be today, tomorrow, next week, or a year, but maybe in two years or five years or ten years. We need men who will stand before the church and demonstrate what it looks like to love Christ more than everything this world has to offer. And if you're again, you're saying, can that really be true? Look, look at verse 8. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The gospel hasn't changed. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now. He is our high priest. He gives us grace. He is the one who saves both Jew and Gentile, who brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life, who takes us from aliens and strangers and adopts us into the family of God, that we'd be children of God, writes our names in the temple of God, that we'd be secured on the mountain of God, that the promises of God would hold us on the mountain of God, that we'd forever be in the presence of God. That's his promise to us. And it never changes. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The gospel doesn't weaken. Isn't that good news? Like this is what we serve. This is who we serve. And so how is it that we are going to grow as a church that loves? Loves those in the church. Loves those who are strangers. Be hospitable to them. Love those who are suffering. Love our spouses. Love our children. Love our Savior. Number one, we remember the gospel. We come back to the gospel every single day. Number two, we delight in the gospel and we take up our cross and we say it is more beautiful than everything this world has to offer. Number three, we live out as a living sacrifice. Our words give praise to God. Our actions are generous to others in all that we do. And we look towards 
The examples that God has given us, men and women, and in the church, particularly men who have been placed as elders, we look at daily examples that remind us God saves today and still transforms people today. And that's how we grow in our love for others. That's the pattern that the book of Hebrews gives us here in chapter 13. So what I want to do now is I want to to just close in prayer. And I want to pray for us as a church. And as I do that, um, I, I, just, I want you to pray, not only for yourself, but pray for the men in this room. The world battles for men's mind in multitude of ways. And it wants to distract us. And that's one of the biggest things it does, just distract us in a thousand different ways. And let's pray for the men, that they would be fixated on Christ that they would live a life of joy and sacrifice for the church and be examples to us all. So let's pray. Father, we, we come to you now and we just praise you. We praise you that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You are immutable. You are unchanging. Lord, the grace that you saved 2,000 years ago is the same grace that you saved today. Lord, may we just know that. May we know that every time we come into your word, we are being faced with your gospel. It is beautiful and it is glorious. And may we see and delight and savor in the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we count him more glorious than all that this world has to offer. May we count all the treasures of the world as rubbish compared to Christ. Help us to daily spend time in your word. And in response to your word, may we want to live for you more and more. And as your grace continues to work in us, Lord, may our words give praise to you. And may our actions be used to serve others. May we love those in the church. May we love those outside the church. God, may we just be living sacrifices in every area of our life. God, I pray for the men. I pray for myself, for the other elders, the other candidates, and every man who is here, whether he's a widow, whether he's married, whether he still lives in the house as a son, as a student. God, may your grace raise up men who love you, who could be examples to the church. You are far more glorious than the things of this world. Lord, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, as we now come to the communion table, particularly remembering the sacrifice of your son that he performed outside the gate. May our hearts be moved to great joy at this time and great thankfulness to know that your grace is working in our hearts today, that just as you went outside the gate, so we would go outside the gate. In your name, Jesus, amen.